Cultivating Place is proud to receive support from the California Native Plant Society. California is a biodiversity hotspot on our planet, and the CNPS is working to support the communities of plants, related beings, and conditions that make it so. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Lisa Wad is a collaborative floral and installation artist. She is the founder of something known as the Detroit Flower House, a 2015 floral phenomenon in downtown Detroit. Erin Preston Johnson Bevel is an unschooling mother and a recovering lawyer, putting her legal experience to work advocating within her Detroit community. She serves on the board of the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, which has come together with two other long-standing food advocacy groups, Keep Growing Detroit and the Oakland Avenue Urban Farm, to create the Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund. Both Lisa and Aaron are advocates and voices for community integrity, and a healthy regrowing and interweaving of community and land and growing thoughtfully and intergenerationally into our collective futures. Both Lisa and Erin are working from home, schooling from home, and working me into their schedules. As we talk, we can hear life going on around them, including five-year-old Soluna in the background at Erin's. I'm going to start right in with these ladies and welcome them by asking about your individual missions for your work and relationships with land and gardens right now in your lives before moving more deeply into how these missions came to intersect and support one another. Well, I would say that I'm an artist and the medium that I communicate with is plants and flowers. And I would also add a layer to that and say that using plants and flowers as art is how I communicate with my community. And as I do the work that I do, um, it's very public facing um, and invites um, many chances for collaboration, um, both with um, growers where I source things inviting people to attend, inviting people to volunteer to help me with the installations. Um, so it's, I would say it, it's two levels. <laughs> um, the plants and flowers give me an outlet to express myself, and they also um, ingratiate me into my community. So Erin, if I were to ask you your motivating principle for your relationship with plants and land and growing right now what would what would that be my relationship with with plants and land you know is, is grounded in in freedom and and in liberation right um you know when we as black people right when we when we come back you know to the land um it is it is it's home right in in a lot of ways and so you know just kind of what you mentioned about covid you know, reminds me that, you know, when we're coming back to the land, like we're, we're coming back home. Um, we're coming back to, you know, being able to engage in, you know, agricultural practices and cooperative practices, collaborative practices with other growers, collaborative practices with the plants, right, with the earth, this, this co-creation 
um, component of, of the African-centered thought. When I come back to that, it is the, the side of the liberation of, of my people. Coming back to that is able to create and, you know, cultivate and kind of be the container in the space where we can hold, you know, those ideas and in concert with our ancestors, right, who, you know, work some of this land, um, not voluntarily, right, and I have the freedom to come back to it voluntarily and make that choice, continually make that choice, um, not just to come back to the land, but to come back to their hands on the land, right, and and kind of reclaiming and, and healing from that. Yeah, yeah. And I'd love to have you keep going, Aaron, and tell us your roles in that work of working with land and having it be in concert with ongoing restoration and healing and liberation. Oh, sure. Thank you. Um, I, I've been really blessed with the opportunity. I'm a, I'm a, I call myself a recovering lawyer by trade. So I'm, I'm a lawyer by trade and, and I practiced for a long time. Um, and then I, I became a mother and I came back here to um, Michigan, which is where I, where I grew up. I lived in DC for a long time. And, um, and have really, that was really where my love for, you know, and, and the commitment to growing my own food uh, was, was born in, in kind of a new and exciting way. And um, when I came back here, you know, as a mom, you know, wanting to get involved with, and, and I've been a lifelong advocate for the continued liberation of my people, obviously, but, um, you know, wanting to, to, to bring those things together. Um, and Detroit is home to a robust food sovereignty activist and and an advocacy place. There's been a long time uh, in Detroit where there was, you know, a lack of grocery stores, you know, a lack of lack of available fresh food, you know, this and this is like within the last 20 years, you know, having the ability to look at some of these problems and collaborate as a community and say, how are we, how are we going to fix this, right? Like not. You know, because of course, I think the constant challenge, you know, for us in America is like, okay, so we're going to ask the government or force the government to try to do something. But it's also like, you know, there, there has to be that self-determination, like we have to also be working to do it ourselves. And so I am on the board of the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network. And so and DBCFSN for short. And so DBCFSN um, uh, and Keep Growing Detroit and Oakland Avenue Urban Farm, which are three long-standing urban farming organizations uh, in Detroit have uh, come together to create the Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund. And so this has been really exciting for me because it's a nice convergence, again, of like this, this legal knowledge that I have, um, but also, you know, kind of this, 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 you know, commitment to ancestral justice and this, and this deep commitment to um, creating, you know, disrupting systems that are going against the liberation of my people and creating systems that are going to, you know, to to hold that, right? To hold the ability of our of our communities to self-determine what we need and how we can make it happen. And in many instances, that means again turning back to the wisdom and the knowledge of our of our ancestors and indigenous and indigenous people, you know, for for un, an understanding of how to how to co-create with the land, right? And so. I've been, you know, really honored to meet people, you know, like Lisa, who are also um, aware and, and acknowledge that there are some serious problems in our food system. There are some serious problems in our farm system. 
um, in America. And of course, these these problems are part and parcel um, of a lot of the issues that we see in our society on a wider basis, right? And so these are you know these are problems of exploitation. Um, they are born out of systems of exploitation, and so they're unable to acknowledge you know why is it that there's so much vacant land in the city of Detroit, but there are so many black growers and farmers that can't afford to buy it, right? Like how how are there so many people that have these skills that are desiring to provide food and provide, you know, open spaces to reduce blight in their communities? Um, you know, you have all these people with these desires, and yet the only thing that's keeping them from doing that and, and having land security and doing that is is funding and is resources. And so the Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund was started with kind of a pipe dream that like maybe we can raise five thousand dollars or so for some black you know black growers to be able to afford their land so they don't have to worry in the middle of a pandemic if their land's gonna get you know taken out from under them, you know, whether by the city or otherwise. We knew kind of how big the problem was, but we, we didn't know how committed so many people were to the solution. Again, we started with this goal of five thousand dollars, like maybe we can raise five thousand dollars. And we I mean we raised over a hundred thousand dollars last year to put money in the hands of, of black growers in Detroit who have demonstrated and are committed to making sure that black people in Detroit can and do have a direct impact on the food system and that we don't have to, you know, continue to be held hostage by a food system that as we saw at the beginning of COVID was not prepared, you know, for a worldwide pandemic, um, was not able, you know, to provide the kind of food stability and security that people need uh, when they're navigating something like this. And, you know, Detroit has, you know, a long history of, of having the availability of fresh fruits, vegetables, uh, you know, for its communities. And that hasn't always spread all the way around, right? And so now people are taking it into their own hands and we're supporting that, right? We're saying that we want to support you doing the work that you're doing in your communities and making sure that we can all continue to grow, you know, the plants and the and the and the produce that we need, you know, whether it's for, you know, food or for value added products or what have you, you know, really kind of, you know, supporting in so many ways and in a way that really only Detroit does, um, really supporting the self determination of the black community here to to save itself. So the land fund itself, this convergence of of these other groups coming together, that was founded in 2020. Yeah, oh yes, Juneteenth 2020 was the day nice. that we the Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund. And so you completely outraised your original goal. We'll get into more details as we go further, but just the size of the problem and and there it's multifaceted of course but and then the hunger for being part of the solution that is such a, a beautiful circularity which i think is what this whole conversation is about and so with with you lisa i would love to um have you explain a little bit more about your work as well tell us a little bit about your your exact work in relationship to to flowers and plants right now so um Yes, I um, call myself a botanical installation artist. So um, installation is something that you can go into looking backwards. I've just come out of a career as a florist and a professional gardener. Closed my client-facing business in 2019. And before that, 
was in school for horticulture and landscape design, always working at nurseries and garden services. Going back even uh, further than that, I don't come from a family with a history of raising heirloom anything. <laughs> I, um, I simply wanted to work outside when I was in high school over the summer. And so I got a job in Northern Michigan where I grew up gardening. I didn't really think that you could do that as a career <laughs> until I stumbled into that um, and then went to college and would study it during the year and then practice it over the summer. You know, in 2019, decided that I wanted to focus on doing public art installations and getting confidence boost from Flower House with um, a pretty warm reception from, dare I say, the world. I took a leap of faith, and um, that is what I do now. You just talked about something called the Detroit Flower House. Uh, most listeners won't know what that is. Could you please uh, take us back to to what that is, like describe it, and uh, also maybe describe its genesis story? So Flower House was a three-day installation in October 2015 for the public. I purchased a house in a city auction here in Detroit, actually in Hamtramck, which is a small city within the city limits of Detroit. Uh, for $250, and you can imagine the state of the house, but it was perfect for Flower House, which basically filled the interior of uh, 17 rooms with flowers. Uh, myself and about 30 other florists from the U.S. and Canada, and we had about 3,400 visitors over three days and 287 million hits online. <laughs> so we got to share some flower love around the world. What was really special and life-changing about Flower House, other than the size, the scale, um, the ambition of the project, was that I very early on committed to sourcing 100% American-grown plants and flowers, thusly kicking off my friendship with Deborah Prinzing of Slow Flowers. It also introduced me to the idea of collaborative art. When projects in our lives are too big, we ask for help so we can, we can achieve them. And Flower House was an immense project and I opened it up so that I could realize my vision. And as I realized that the project was bettered when I invited people in and shared the vision, became ours, not mine, um, I, it hooked me. So that became really a pillar of um, what's important in the work that I do. And being a white artist in a majority Black city, my work has deepened in ways that I had no idea I would learn and experience um, when I moved to Detroit, oh, I want to say eight years ago. 
This is Cultivating Place. Lisa Wad is a floral installation artist, and Aaron Preston Johnson Bevel is with the Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund. They are with us this week talking about how liberation, co creation, and a small piece of land in urban Detroit brought the two together. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible by the California Native Plant Society on a mission to support California's native plants and places using both head and heart. CNPS is proud to be working in support of the indigenous-led initiative, Saging the World. Metric tons of white sage, Salvia apiana, are being poached to supply an international demand. This plant is deeply rooted in the cultures and lifeways of the indigenous communities of Southern California and Northern Baja, the only region where white sage naturally occurs in the world. The devastating theft and appropriated trend that it fuels stand in sharp contrast with the values and traditional practices of regional native communities. Indigenous advocates express that white sage that has been irreverently ripped from the wild, sold on the black market, shipped across the planet, and burned without regard for indigenous practices has no medicine. Native people have long fought for the protection and recognition of white sage. Rose Ramirez and Deborah Small, authors of the Ethnobotany Project and White Sage Advocates, say that it's time to sage the world. We need to boycott wild-crafted sage products. We need to grow native plants like white sage in our own home gardens for our own use. And we need to reorient perspectives of plants away from being resources and towards being relationships. For more information on how you can support this initiative, please visit www.cnps.org forward slash conservation forward slash white hyphen sage. Hey, it's Jennifer. As we finish up Black History Month and we head into Women's History Month, I'm reminded of the importance of celebrating people and endeavors we believe in whenever and wherever we can. Early in this conversation today with Lisa and Aaron, I was moved by Lisa's recognition of the importance of identifying when we need help and asking for it and of the truly transformative nature and narrative of any work of art or creation or heart when it moves from being mine to being ours. The load is so much lighter. The gifts are so much more satisfying when shared. And the road toward this work is so much more fun in companionship. This is true on so many levels in our gardens, isn't it? How we, working in collaboration with water and sunshine, with snow and wind, with night and day, with birds, pollinators, predators, with soil, structure, and life, and with one another to help steward food, flowers, and habitat. We can't, we don't, we couldn't do this alone. We're always receiving help, 
and cycling it back out into the universe. When we see this clearly, our growing is easier. Our growing is even more beautiful. Keep growing, friends. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This is Cultivating Place. Lisa Wad is a floral artist, and Aaron Preston Johnson Bevel is with the Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund. The two are with us this week talking about how liberation, co-creation, and a small piece of land in urban Detroit brought the two together. As we come back, Lisa shares much more about the catalysts behind the original 2015 Flower House project, which included community, collaboration, invitation, and agency. For listeners who might not have uh, an image in their mind of what, what this entailed, you know, there are the, the pictures of Flower House Detroit, definitely Google it and look it up, are pictures of a large group of people and a, a dilapidated house in an urban space. So I think you could probably conjure up some vision of that. And then it is completely embellished inside and out with botanical artistry. There is a a painted mural on the front of the house. There is a an enormous epic garland that sort of twines up the outside of the house. In the interior rooms, even in their dilapidation, there are floral displays. There's one room in which the greenery is installed and structured in such a way that it almost looks like a cyclone in the middle of the room, all done with handmade armature and foliage. And so with this really, you know, out of the box, in a box, thinking and visioning, why? Why would you do this, Lisa? Like, what was the mission for it? And what new paradigm or perspective thinking grew out of that for you? Flower House existed as art and to experience the wonder of beauty. I am hugely influenced by the work of Christo and Jean-Claude, installation artists of a much larger scale, wrapping buildings and bridges and, and other architecture Um, In fabric, usually this off-balance ratio of planning for decades and being open to the public for days or weeks, something about it, just love that. (laughs) So um, you can see the influence there. Directly influencing um, the creation of Flower House was 2012's Dior show when Rafe Simmons took over as creative director and filled the walls of a Paris mansion with flowers. And I blatantly stole the idea (laughs) and I wanted to bring it to Detroit, but I wanted to bring it to Detroit because no one invited me to Paris to see this installation. Um, I wanted to not only experience it, but to invite anyone else whose interest was piqued when I said, I'm going to fill a house with flowers. (laughs) If that sounded interesting to you, you are welcome here. That that's great. And, and did you experience from this artistic expression and exercise, did you experience a shift in thinking or perspective on how you were engaging with flowers and community 
And if so, can you articulate that for us? One thing that surprised me when I committed the project to 100% American grown flowers and plants, I thought that would alienate people. Some folks told me that I would be turning away flowers if I wasn't accepting imports, right? And what actually happened was the passion and the commitment of other people for locally grown flowers, and we're saying local for the pretty large radius <laughs> to cover the domestic US, the passion outweighed any of that negativity that I was saying no to. I felt immediately part of a greater community and realized that by working together, there are economic and community building moments for projects of this size and even down to very tiny if you can if you can work together to source your flowers locally. Yeah, I'm 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 liking all the layers here of not only the lovely uh mismatched parallel of the Parisian mansion uh with the dilapidated house in Detroit and this idea of both access and ephemerality and community it's beautiful. And so Aaron, I want to come back to you now and I, I would love to have you also do a little bit of foundational backfilling for us. You you are a recovering lawyer uh, and you are deeply committed to putting all of your skills and passion to work uh, for the land and food and community justice and joy of, of where you are in Detroit now. Can you take us back a little bit to where you were born and raised and maybe some of the people or places or plants that like grew you into a person for whom this would be important uh, calling and, and work at this point in your life? So I, I moved here. My parents are from the East Coast, but we moved here when I was six. I consider myself you know, mostly to be a Michigander. I, I went to University of Michigan for undergrad, and that's where I cut my teeth as a as an activist and, and an advocate. Uh, my father's a lawyer. I don't know why. I thought Martin Luther King Jr. was a lawyer for like the longest time. I don't know why, but I did. And like, but it was very much, you know, he was a very, you know, instrumental person um, in our household. My mother and a number of her friends got together and created a day. Night We Walk um, in West Bloomfield, Michigan is a celebration of Martin Luther King Jr. and his legacy. It was a federal holiday for a long time, but a lot of places didn't like shut down and celebrate it, right? It wasn't like really as big of a thing as it is now. And um, and my mother and and her friends were really big and instrumental in bringing a an annual um an annual celebration of his life, which still is going on now. You know, twenty five some odd years later, we were very much raised like many uh you know black children in America, and this this speaks a little bit to even critical race theories. You know, in terms of being a parent and wanting your child to to know the truth about about life, um, you know, it, which is not an outlandish request. You know, and and I think that speaks too to the to the unschooling piece, right? Like I know how much I had to unlearn from my time in traditional American school about what being black was about and, you know, how that shows up. I think there are so many black people who, as Leah Penniman puts it, they confuse 
you know, the scene of the crime, right, which is the land with, with, the, with the criminal itself. And, of course, we're seeing a renewal of, of all these beautiful black and brown people who are, are putting that to the side, right, and, and, are, and are going back to the land in, in droves and really, you know, want to take um, and have an equal footing in terms of land ownership in America, right? So the system that is, was created for, you know, land ownership in America is was completely foreign, you know, to the, you know, to the people that were here when Europeans arrived. Now we've allowed ourselves to become comfortable with a food system that exploits, you know, the workers at the front end that is negatively impacting a lot of our produce in order for it to look good. It's increasing our carbon footprint. Ultimately, it's destroying a lot of our planet. When we walk backwards, we can kind of look and see you know, how much things have changed, you know, yes, the Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund in, you know, raising funds to directly provide for black farmers to be able to buy their own land so that they can grow for their communities. I mean, that's, it, 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 it's been an astonishing experience, but, but sadly, it's not even the best solution. The best solution is going to be something that you know, is changing the paradigm of land ownership as we know it to kind of encompass like the land having representation. And of course, there have been astonishing, you know, advancements from the industrial resolution, from science, all of that, that have improved the way that we've done things. But then some of them are, are very damaging long term, right? And so we're not acknowledging that. We're just like, well, you know, how do we like keep doing the same thing and not make it too much worse when we're talking about black people and brown people and indigenous people trying to acquire land, right? When we're talking about land back, when we're talking about reparations, like when we're talking about all of these things, I mean, ultimately we're talking about there needs to be a, a, a mass under, you know, re-understanding of how land ownership is, is, is looked at in the American system. Because the way that it's done now only acknowledges it's who has the most money, right? And who has the most money is never, you know, for so many reasons, you know, that's not going to be equalized either. And so I'm always thinking long-term, short-term, whatever. Like, I'm always thinking about how can we push the envelope on this narrative that we have to continue to own land in this way, right? And why can't we start to rethink the ways that we're utilizing land. You know, how can we get land back into the hands of the people who are going to do the best with it, right? But then, you know, also how do we do that in a system that has been, you know, in place for 400 some years and has continued to, you know, persist over time? There are, of course, thousands of people that have all kinds of reliances on their on their their land acquisition. And um, but ultimately, the only way we're going to fix this is if we're going to change that whole system. You know, things like the Black Farmer Land Fund, you know, bring about the kinds of conversation that Lisa and I have been able to have about why, you know, and how we can start rethinking these the, these frameworks so that we're not continuing to facilitate the same kind of exploitation that we've been doing. You know, we have we have a chance to do something different. Lisa Wad is a large-scale, installation, public-facing floral artist. Aaron Preston Johnson Bevel is of the Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund. The two are with us today talking about how their very different-seeming work 
has come together around a little piece of land in Detroit. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer, thinking out loud this week. The other thing that struck me in this conversation with Aaron and Lisa was this concept of invitation. Lisa brings it up when she says to us that she was not invited to this floral thing in Paris. But then she took it on herself to create this floral thing in Detroit and to invite everybody and anybody who might have an interest in this event and in its messaging. It makes me think about and question, what are or aren't we as gardeners invited to? What are or aren't we invited to do? Who and what are we and aren't we inviting into our gardens and garden lives? What solutions to what challenges in our individual and collective lives are we inviting our gardening to be part of? I think these are really worthwhile meditations. I really do. What do you garden people think? I invite you to share your thoughts with me. I would love to share them forward. Consider this an open invitation, as always. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This is Cultivating Place. Aaron Preston Johnson Bevel is with the Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund. In 2020, Lisa Wad, a large-scale installation floral artist, approached the land fund to see how she might be able to put land she owned in downtown Detroit to work for the land fund. As we come back, the two of them are envisioning this restorative economic and land project together. You know, last year we raised hundred thousand dollars but this is still, so this is still year one right this is 2020 and um and so we're still kind of like blown away that all these people are still donating money to this we're like this is dope so we're so we're like we're we're rushing trying to put infrastructure in place right like we're thinking this is going to be like a small thing and we're like okay we gotta we gotta scale this so we're we're putting our infrastructure together and and just still thinking about you know how what are all the ways that we can you know support the black farmers and growers that, cause you know, so about a little bit about the people that we've awarded to real quick. So about half of them um, were already, are already growing on land that they can't afford to buy. Right. And so that puts them in a distinct, um, you know, danger. And then we've seen it happen before, like the city can, you know, sell it out to whoever and, and then, you know, take up all their crops, all that kind of stuff. So we've seen that happen way too many times. And so about half of our folks are those folks. And the other half are folks that, you know, again, are, you know, have this, you know, gardening knowledge. There are so many urban farming organizations in Detroit that have done a great job, you know, teaching the next generation about how to grow their own food and really want to kind of put this into practice in their communities or see a vacant lot that's been sitting in their community forever. Nobody's doing anything with it. Like, I want to do something nice with it. We have those folks that we're continuing to raise money for and, and realizing like, okay, they also need 
you know, like wraparound services and some of these people, you know, in addition to land, you can't just like give someone land and then walk away, right? Again, you know, back to, to the point of if even, you know, if we're talking about reparations, right? Like reparations, everything's not fixed, like just because, you know, you, you drop some money or you drop some land on something and you walk away. There's there's much more that needs to be done. And, and at some point in there, you know, Lisa Lisa reached out and was like, hey, are you guys, are you guys doing land donations? And I was like, I don't see why not. I was like, yeah, I was, it blew my mind because it was like, whoa, so much of this land that is, you know, quote unquote vacant, right? Which means that it's been taken over by the city and the city is selling it and in some instances for much more than it's worth. If so many people like went into their, you know, real estate portfolio and started looking at these lots or these things that they have because they're hanging on to it for a rainy day or like they think that they're going to be able to use it or beyond just this the lot as like this business entity, but it's also, it's, it's, it's in a community. Like it's also a place with real like circumstantial needs. And, you know, it, 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 it and again, this, this piece of land that, that Lisa did, it, it has space, it has a tree, it, you know, so, and there's this disconnect between the, the legal entity that's been created by this lot, right? This lot number and like the real thing that is actually there and what does that mean for the people that are around it? You know, when she reached out to me, I was just so excited because I was like, oh, wow, maybe there are like other people who like want to do this and want to want to take this kind of inquiry, right? Because I was also really impressed, like, whoa, like this is someone who has like taken the inquiry to say like, hey, this is, this is land. And I love that Lisa's an artist. Because um, I'm an artist, like, in, 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 in a variety of different ways, right? I don't necessarily use flowers, but, like, it was, it was you know, I see a lot of this as, as art, right? And as the seed of, of creativity, kind of like, you know, we're coming together to say, okay, like, this is some land that maybe I don't need anymore. Like, what, what can we do to make it better? And, like, listening to Lisa talk about her process with Flower House, it made perfect sense to me like when like when she said the thing about you know I realized once I was working in collaboration with other people and it became ours and not mine that there was just this different feeling that encompassed everything right because feelings are so important in art if people are thinking about land like this this is going to change the framework that we're working in if this space that Lisa created and that now a black farmer is going to be able to create into a children's garden like that it's, it's beautiful. Like, it's a beautiful way to use that space in that community. It's visible, like, from the freeway. You can see it. Like, it's just the beauty and the aesthetic um, and, and the healing that, it can, that can come to a community from something like that. You know, that doesn't have value in the law. You know, the law is, like, how much does it cost? But, like, we have to start coming back and saying, like, no, that's not the only thing that matters. So, Lisa... How do you remember this going from your side? I mentioned that Flower House, the whole idea of it was beauty and art and come and have your breath taken away. Unless it's something that I need or the community needs where we need just something beautiful, I now prefer to pair the beauty with a message where the flowers and the plants are how I get people in, right? And if I, I say, if you have just a minute, I would like you to enjoy this, but I would like to have this conversation. And it's a very gentle, beautiful way to bring people into a conversation, right? And if you'll take another leap with me, as I mentioned, I am a white artist working in a majority black city. 
And so often there are chances for me to address race in my work. And I'm very interested in this. I think a lot of pressure falls on Black artists to do work that's around race. In 2020, like everyone else, I was in the middle of a pandemic and was concerned about my local flower farmers, that all the weddings were canceled and where would they, who would they sell all the flowers to? So, and like I mentioned, I had closed my business. So I said, oh, I wish I had a reason to buy all these flowers. So I launched a six week installation series, one installation a week around town, around the city and that you could easily see from your car or outside with a mask on. Just did a, a fundraiser tab on my website. People paid me money and I gave it to the farmers and I did the installations. I did one installation and then George Floyd was murdered. And I had been working with some local people who wrote a guidebook on Detroit to pick interesting places. And I was in the midst of learning about George Floyd and going through the emotions with my community, I leaned into the places where the installations were. The first one happened to be a house that Marvin Gaye wrote, What's Going On In? Decided that I could not shy away from being a part of this conversation and had an installation at the corner of where um, the 67 rebellion started, the place where Malice Green was murdered, Exploring these places, again, coming back to, if you only have the bandwidth to come and see something beautiful, by all means, it's here for you. If you have a minute, there's more to this. Why is it here? Why is it at Warren and 23rd? So the plan for the Flower House property was a flower farm for my business. The people who we partnered with to responsibly deconstruct the house had a warehouse fire that put our deconstruction back a year. So I had a lot of time to think and decided that I would prefer the land be a public park to give back to that neighborhood that put up with Flower House. For two years, it was planted and maintained as a public park. And I never knew if folks were there. When I was there weeding, kids would come by and play. It felt like the right end of the flower house story. I did a thing, we took the house down, now it's a park. Um, that summer, I was doing these installations and heard about the launch of the Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund. And it was like a moment of clarity that will always be with me. I was like, no, no, that's not the end of the flower house story. This is the end of the flower house story and the beginning of something else beautiful. I am so thankful for the time and the space that Erin gave me because my first impulse was to quietly transfer ownership, not make a big deal out of it. I talked to Erin and she gave me the time and space for us to talk through that it would actually be more beneficial if I were able to use this as a platform to motivate other landholding Detroiters to think of this as an option and to get creative too. Erin, um, thank you also for your term restorative economics. That is why 
I am in this conversation. Do you have something you would like to add right here, Erin? I was going to talk about restorative economics just just for a second, um, because when I coined the term, you know, restorative economics, you know, I, I was thinking about, you know, how can we, you know, inspire, motivate, influence, right? Like influence any landowner, right? Like the again, rethinking and retooling how we think about land ownership so it's more consistent with pre-colonial ideals that help us co-create with the earth. Yes, like we live in a capitalist society, like that's already where we are. Like, yes, there are lots of things that we can change, you know, but but how can we, with the money that we have or with the resources that we have, how can we be using those to restore some of the relationships that have been so broken for generations of time? Because there's resolving the problem and then there's restoring the community. And those are those are separate pieces, right? And so America has this, this idea that it's like, oh, okay, we can fix the problem and walk away. It's like there's still a community, a nation, a country, you know, our country in many instances that needs restoration from that. Like it's like the problem didn't just, it's not just over just because you you resolved it in a sense, right? It's like, and so, so the restorative piece comes from making sure that we are, you know, creating solutions and being creative in our thinking and thinking outside of the box to say, how do we, how do we make this better and not just make it end? You know, we can solve the problem all day, but that's not going to solve the problem for the future, right? And again, in, in the African tradition, we're always thinking intergenerationally. We're always thinking about the future. There was someone thinking about me seven generations ago, like willing themselves to believe that I would exist. Why don't we think about changing America so that it actually encompasses all of the people that have been hurt over time, as opposed to just continuing, again, to throw money at the problem or to act like it's over, right? Because neither of those are accurate. Um, and so restorative, restorative economics is like, hey, I can, I, can, I can donate some land or, you know, I have, you know, I can get, I can get folks together, a bunch of people this summer who, like their individual businesses didn't have money to donate, but they were like, hey, we're going to get together with three other businesses and, and do a fundraiser. And then we're going to donate to the Black Farmer Land Fund. Like, it was amazing. And like, I didn't tell these people to do that. Like, they just, they just did. But they were like, gosh, maybe like 20 or so, what we called mini fundraisers, where people just cropped up and start, again, this collaborative piece started coming together. Like, how can we come together to support this effort? Um, we might not have money to give right now, but maybe we have something else. Maybe we can volunteer at the farm. Sort of economics is also about that. Like, Let's not just focus on the money, right? Like, let's focus on all of the other things that go into making this a success. And we all know that, that most things, if not all things, require a variety of different pieces to come together. And that openness and receptivity to, to these ideas and these relationships and these ways that we can live into being ongoing parts of solution, I think is just so important that we hear because we can't all fix everything, but we can fix some things a little bit at a time. And so the more ways we explore how our gardens are at these intersections, I think the more every gardener out there says, oh, wait, maybe I'm part of this story too. And that is my hope. And it's certainly being lived out on the ground there in Detroit with Aaron and Lisa. 
and vision forward what you see this land looking like and feeling like and being the forum for as you envision what it might look like in a year or in the next generation. And maybe we'll start with you, Lisa. When I learned who the farmers were that were taking the flower house land, a woman named Ebony and her mom, and they are planning and planting a children's sensory garden. I guess it felt so connected and just like this inevitable, perfect ending that I couldn't have anticipated. I think that as a historically as a florist and a flower gardener who would design perennial gardens for clients, I could feel really disconnected from farmers growing food. I felt like I, it was a completely different world. And so I think my hesitation in reaching out, it seemed like, well, this, I think this is about flowers. It's not about food. <laughs> and so when I reached out, I don't know what I expected and I don't know who I expected to be the new stewards of that land were. But when I heard about the children's garden, it was, again, like doubling down on the perfect end to the flower house story. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just, it was so nice too, just to add, Lisa, to, to hear like that this is, this was kind of like a perfect next step for you. Like it just, it felt, it felt like everything just really came uh, full circle. We met up there at the site. It was me and Lisa and Ebony and my daughter was there. Ebony's mom was there, you know, because she, she's going to be helping out also. And just, you know, Lisa was telling us that there are these children in the community that always come over and like play when she's weeding. And, and so, I mean, it's, it's just such a great example, I think of, you know, sometimes you might not, you might not be in a community well enough to, to know it. You might not know everybody in the community, right. But you can still make sure that the footprint that you leave and the impact that you leave is meaningful and that it's connected to something that's on the ground, right? And I think there are gonna be some other children's gardens. Um, Some folks have started talking about doing that who we awarded money to this year. But I wanna say this will probably be the first one that will be completed out of all of the almost 75 Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund awardees over the past couple of years who are growing a variety of different farms, gardens, parks, dog parks, you know, all kinds of things. You know, as a sensory garden, like I wanna be, taking my daughter there, you know, again, as an unschooling mom, I'm always looking for community resources that I can use to engage my child in her understanding of the world. And all of us on the Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund uh, leadership team are moms, right? So someplace where all of us can be, you know, taking our children and, you know, someplace that will continue to flourish. I think it does well by the land too. It's such a beautiful, beautiful story toward our, our liberation. When we as humans think of ourselves as working in concert with the land, we are working, we're working together with the land. When we're thinking about that, we're saying, like the, the inquiry is just different, right? We're saying, you know, this is, what, this is what my impact is going to be on this piece of land. 
and then and then I'm thinking about what the what, what's going to happen next. And then when we're working, when we're all working together again, there there's that intergenerational piece, right? Even when we think intergenerational, like we only think we think blood, right? We think family. That's the only thing that we think. But again, like we're the we're the human family, right? And so like we also have a level of intergenerational wisdom that we can pass, even if we're not connected to each other necessarily, right? And so like there has to be that that understanding that the land is here not just for us to use, but the land is here for us to steward, right? And so that we have a collective responsibility to make sure that we are doing right by the land, or in some instances, passing it back to where it needed to be in the first place. Thank you both very much for being guests on the program today. It's been very energizing to speak to the two of you today. Oh, thank you. I've really enjoyed this. I'm so glad. Um, I just love Lisa. I think she's so cool. And I just, I'm just, I really, I, I, I always, I say, it's fine. I post on my Facebook page this morning. I was like, you know, give credit where credit is due. I mean, it's so important that there are not a lot of people thinking like this. And, and you are hopefully the beginning of a variety of folks who will start to think about this all over, all over America, I hope. It's not, you know, of course, if you're here in Detroit, definitely hit us up. We're at DetroitBlackFarmer.com um, if you want to donate some land to us or other things. Um, but I've been so honored to have the opportunity to work with you, Lisa, to, to bring this to fruition. Um, this is it's just, it's really beautiful. And I'm just so excited to see, you know, what else is burned from it. I don't speak as eloquently as you do, Aaron, but <laughs> it is always such a joy to hear you share the knowledge you have. And I'm, I'm very thankful for you. Lisa Wad is a large-scale installation floral designer. She works with both mission and scale to create change in this world. Erin Preston Johnson Bevel is an unschooling mother and a recovering lawyer, putting her legal experience to work advocating within her Detroit community. She serves on the board of the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, which has come together with two long-standing food advocacy groups, Keep Growing Detroit and Oakland Avenue Urban Farm, to create the Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund. Both Lisa and Aaron are advocates and voices for community, integrity, and a healthy regrowing and interweaving of community and land in our collective futures. As we move forward into that future, make sure to check out both the work of the Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund online and on Instagram, as well as the Detroit Flower House Instagram feed, which will now be dedicated to showcasing black floral farmers, designers, and growers. Join us again next week when we head to Denver, Colorado, where we're in conversation with Areti Athanasopoulos, a landscape architect working with the International Rescue Committee and Denver Urban Gardens to create a Denver base for the IRC's New Roots program, which since 2008 has allowed international refugees spaces to garden, to become food secure, and to root successfully in their new homes and communities. Listen in next week. 
Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible by listeners just like you through the support button at the top right-hand corner on any page at cultivatingplace.com. We're also made possible by partner support from the California Native Plant Society. For more information on the Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund and the Detroit Flower House and their coming together, head on over to cultivatingplace.com and look for this week's show notes under the podcast tab where you'll also find many beautiful images of the project past and present. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler with tech and web support weekly from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Thank you.